Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of January 27, 2020. This episode officially kicks off the 2020 season coverage which marks our seventh season podcasting. For those that have been listening from the very beginning, thank you for sticking around. For those of you that are new to the show and just discovered us, welcome. We hope to be entertaining and informative for you to be a subscriber. We'll have episodes every Monday that will be about an hour long. And when the regular season starts on March 26th, there will be a podcast available for you every weekday with Sox Machine Live, recapping the midweek series, and White Sox wake-up calls to cover the daily activities. With SoxFest now over, the Chicago White Sox will begin to pack up and prepare moving down to Glendale, Arizona for spring training the next two weeks. You could feel the excitement at McCormick Place this past weekend as White Sox fans Packed the convention center eager for the 2020 season to start. White Sox personnel, they are just as excited as the fans to kick off the new season. We'll hear from a few of them in a moment, but let's start our SoxFest recap with the general manager, Rick Hahn, sharing at the town hall the importance of signing Yasmani Grandel first this offseason to kick off a very busy offseason for the White Sox. Converting on Yez, converting on Grandal early in the offseason was important. Uh, he, for obvious reasons, was at the top of our list from a positions player standpoint. And from, from, from our front office point of view, we would love to get all these things done as quickly as possible. We, we signed Yez a week before Thanksgiving. It'd be marvelous 
and make for a boring winter meetings, but it'd be marvelous if we got all our work done that quickly. Unfortunately, you can't really control when it's moved and when players are comfortable enough to commit. Uh, the fact that after Ricky and, and Kenny and Jeremy Haber and myself met with Trondahl and his agent in, in Arizona, uh, that helped lend a lot of momentum to that process, and we were able to close the deal within two weeks after that. Uh, that obviously was a nice start to the offseason, but as we were clear at the end of end of the rush, we had multiple needs, and, and getting the ads early was, was really the, the first of what many things we're going to have to get done. The White Sox have a lot of new faces in camp with a change in attitude preparing and expecting to compete for the American League Central Crown in 2020. Han explains how this spring training will feel different from recent years. I think Coop probably put it best where he said something to the own special way that tryouts are over. Uh, there's a, not going to lie, there's a part of scouting and player development that when you have an open roster and you have young guys competing for an opportunity, that excites you. You, you get sort of motivated to find a diamond in a rough. You know, Evan Marshall is an example of that from last year. And this year, there's going to be fewer of those opportunities. The roster is going to be more set. The expectations are going to be higher. And, uh, you know, Ricky and his staff are, are well positioned to get the most out of these guys. And that, that starts in, well, it's already started through hitters camp and their conversations, but it really starts in earnest once we all get to Glendale. Aloy Jimenez will be key to the White Sox offensive success in 2020. In his rookie season, Jimenez hit 31 home runs while slugging better than 500, but his defense dragged his final war total down. Jimenez is pretty confident that 2020 will be a much better season for him. Well, I can say uh, I have more experience this year, uh, and I know it's going to be better we go because we have more people in the lineup, so it's going to be fun. We spoke about Jimenez's struggles against the slider in great length last season as he was 19 for 96 against that pitch heading into the final month of the season, which is a 198 batting average. But something clicked for Jimenez in September as he went 11 for 22 against sliders in the final month of the season, hitting five home runs. I asked Jimenez what adjustments he made against the difficult pitch. It was more... Uh, I was working more on my confidence and uh, tried to gain two inches and at the end uh, that gave me itself so it was pretty much it. One of the new faces at spring training will be 2019 first round pick Andrew Vaughn. He shared how his first professional offseason went and the difference in preparation from the college game to the pros. I mean, there's really an off-season. I mean, in college, you play fall ball, winter, you're right back into it. So it's kind of nice to have a little bit of an off-season just to relax and recoup and get ready for this year. You get to play every day. It's kind of fun. Um, you don't have to wait for the weekend like in college and then go to school all of that. So you get to go out and play every day and just do the grind. Finally, Major League Baseball is flirting with the idea of having an automated strike zone. I asked Yasmani Grandel, who is one of the best pitch framers in the game today, how he feels if the league did move in that direction. I mean, being an umpire in the big leagues is probably one of the hardest jobs you, you can possibly have. To be quite frankly, you have you have two teams going at you, and you have uh, forty thousand people screaming at you. So, you know, my hats, my hats, 
hats off to those guys. You know, hard, their, their job is hard enough. I think it's going to be one of those things that if we do go to the robo umpire, they're going to have to kind of, I guess, leave their ego on the door, you know, because now they're not calling strikes or balls, and um, they're kind of taking that human element out of the out of the question, which I guess that's sometimes I'm I'm kind of against it because human element is part of the game and human error is part of the game. Um, it's not only a blown call by an umpire, but it can be an error by somebody. Uh, it can be a mislocation on a pitch. It can be uh, a bad swing by a hitter or their decision making. So I'm not opposed to it. Uh, but I guess it'll make the umpire's job a little bit easier. SoxFest 2020 was filled with a lot of excitement for the upcoming season, and the team has high hopes. Joining me now on the Sox Machine podcast from the road is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. We got a shout-out from Rick Hahn at SoxFest. Yeah, it's been a while. I think uh, the the previous time he did it was at the Sabre Analytics Conference in Phoenix, but it's been a quite a long time. And yeah, it's always good to hear. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I will always take it. And as far as SoxFest, the, the, the key takeaways, there's a couple of things that I wanted to chime in. And I wrote about it as far as on SoxMachine.com. Uh, and it seems like the, the rumors are becoming true. Uh, I wrote about on how it felt very congested. This was the first year that Sox Fest was at McCormick Place. And for those that don't live in Chicago, or if you do live in Chicago and you've never had a reason to visit McCormick Place, you're not interested in the car show, or you don't go to any other trade shows or seminars at McCormick Place, McCormick Place is huge. It feels like it goes on for miles and miles. You could easily put in 20,000 steps in a day. I got lost just trying to find the media room, Jim, uh, on Friday. <laughs> and when I got to the floor level of where SoxFest was, they made this massive place feel tight. And what is coming down the pipe right now is that for SoxFest 2021, the White Sox are going to rent more space. So for those that did not enjoy themselves at SoxFest this past weekend because you didn't like the layout uh, and, it, and you had the same feeling, you felt tight and it was too congested, uh, the White Sox are going to work on that and approve upon that next year at McCormick Place. So it will be at McCormick Place uh, for SoxFest uh, 2021. So that's good news for those of you that maybe had a bad taste in your mouth attending SoxFest this past weekend. The other thing that I do want to also chime in real quick is for all those that attended the SoxFest after party uh, that we co-hosted with the From the 108 guys at Reggie's, thank you so much for coming out. It was an absolute blast. We had 130 people attend. Uh, and it, it was great to hear all the the feedback from those that um, stopped by and said hi to me that you enjoyed attending and you hope to go to more events like that again. Uh, Reggie's was very happy with us. Cool. Uh, they're not mad at us, <laughs> so that's good. Uh, I, I think that could be a new home for us to, to host more live events. It's just a matter of timing. So if you had FOMO, and you just didn't get an opportunity to attend the Sox Fest after party. We'll do it again next year, but we may do a couple more events during the 2020 season because I'm sure the White Sox will give us plenty of reasons to stay excited and stay in tuned with the White Sox for the upcoming year. Uh, so stay tuned on that. But those are just a couple of takeaways I had from this past weekend. 
Yeah, real real quick on on that. One, I listened to the uh, the roundtable. Uh, you and James Fagan and Connor McKnight and Kevin Powell. Uh, thanks for uploading that because that was great. I was listening to that. I'm driving. Yeah, I wasn't able to make it to Sox Fest or the festivities this year because I'm in the middle of a move. Um, just uh, finished driving uh, to Nashville, which is where I'm moving. Uh, my wife just got a job down here. So we're in the process of moving us both down and she's getting started first new job. I'm still in transition. I'll be heading back. But uh, like my last uh, about month or two has been kind of a mess <laughs> when it comes to being half moved, half packing, uh, packing one person and so forth and, 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 and figuring out logistics. And I've never actually even been to Nashville. This is my first time. So I'm moving blind. So I've been doing a lot of learning. Uh, but the good news is once I'm settled, I will be, you know, it's about uh, five to six hours closer than Albany was to Chicago. So when it comes to making it to Chicago on short notice, whether or or even for advanced notice, like Sox Fest events, in-season events, so on and so forth, be a lot easier for me to get there one way or another, whether it's a cheap direct flights or a seven hour drive should be doable. So um, uh, that's uh, yeah. Nashville. I'm liking it so far, but one of the reasons I'm most excited is you know, the, the added flexibility of uh, being able to uh, make these events more often and be a greater part. But I want to thank you, Josh, uh, for uh, picking up the slack and uh, this year with uh, me being completely out of it, <laughs> you were able to uh, uh, team up with the 108 guys to make something that sounded really fun. And, and uh, you, you talk about uh, uh, fear of missing out. I had that fear and I feel like I missed out. And the problem we're going to have, Jim, is that everyone is going to want to attend these events in the future. We had so many people from Chicago media, and I also want to give them a shout out as well. All the folks from 670 The Score that attended. It was just not Connor McKnight, Lawrence Holmes, Herb Lawrence attended, Joe Ostrowski, Barry Rosner also made an appearance. Uh, Jason Goff made an appearance as well. Uh, and uh, Chris Tannehill and Shane Rordan uh, also attended uh, from 670 to the score. And uh, everybody's been raving about it. And again, it's just not going to be White Sox fans. It's also going to be Chicago media folks that are going to hit us up via email and DM asking how they can score tickets uh, to future events. That's all I did on the day of the event was add more people to the list. Uh, but it, it's very exciting to hear that everybody enjoyed themselves. Reggie's was a great location and uh, we'll continue working with the, from the one Oh eight guys. Cause it's always enjoyable to work with them. It, they, they make the party happen. Uh, they make sure that we hit our alcohol minimum. So thank you to them for that. Uh, By themselves? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it, it came pretty close. I think towards the second half of the, uh, the party. Um, but again, for those that didn't get a chance to come, uh, don't worry. We'll have future events at Reggie's movie forward. And if you still can't come because you live outside the country, uh, because they have a sound system and a sound guy, we will be able to do more live podcasts on location. Like we did, uh, with James Connor and Kevin. So, uh, look forward to that throughout the 2020 season, and we'll start planning for the 2021 season as well. I don't know exactly when SoxFest is, but when we know, we'll let you guys know as well. So let's talk about what happened at SoxFest. There are a few news items that I want to discuss here with you, Jim. And the first part is the exciting new faces, getting a chance to meet Yasmani Grandal uh, and Luis Robert for White Sox fans, and starting with... 
Grandal. We, we just heard from Grandal and his thoughts about RoboUmps coming uh, to the major leagues uh, early in the show. I thought that was an interesting take that he doesn't really care. And, you know, I think he, he as a catcher, he understands what umpires have to go through because they got to make a quick call after he tries to frame a pitch. But speaking with him at SoxFest and writing about it on SoxMachine.com, Jim, I came away very impressed that he's already formulated a game plan for each of the starting pitchers like Dylan Cease. And we've heard many times in baseball about veteran leadership and the importance of preparation and how vets can come into a clubhouse and help young players with that critical area to get ready for a season. Mm-hmm. We've seen veterans be brought into the White Sox clubhouse over the years, and they have had no success, I feel, as far as helping the youngsters in those areas. But do you think when you hear from Yasmani Grandal or you read his comments from this weekend, do they carry more weight because of his past experiences playing for the Dodgers and Brewers and the fact that he's been to the postseason five straight years? Yeah, I think on this particular club it can. And, and you know, you mentioning that, had me thinking back to previous off seasons with Grandal uh, before this one, when his free agent market kind of dried up and you know, they're talking about the qualifying offer and whether he was worth it and, and whether his pitch framing was a detriment because he led too many pass balls and he was too focused on that, not focused enough on actually catching pitches. And uh, you know, the Dodgers pitchers like throwing to other guys at certain points and uh, didn't really, uh, I, I guess the, the reports were mixed on his ability to prepare for games or his ability to get on the same page with pitchers. And, you know, maybe that's something that's true for say like a veteran rotation, or if you have like a lot of, uh, you have a really, I guess, set rotation and set pitching coach, pitching strategy type thing from the top down to where everybody's on the same page. And then a catcher comes in, uh, inherits the staff that has a lot of success and it says, this is how we're going to do it now because this is what I believe in. And I can see maybe if that was the case or some kind of maybe lesser uh, example of that being the case, then maybe that would rub some people the wrong way or maybe you know he doesn't catch certain pitchers. But uh, maybe this is one example of, you know, the, the White Sox rebuild um, having an additional benefit. You know, one of the benefits I, I kind of touted with the rebuild was that you know, after all these uh, failed attempts to get leadership on uh, to import leadership, that you would have all these guys uh, grow up together through the system and learn how to get along with each other, maybe not like each other, but if they don't like each other, at least get along, play, coexist, or figure out who doesn't coexist before the spotlights are at their brightest and, and you have, uh, you know, the, I guess the pressure of big league games and pennant races, or at least trying to compete in pennant races, all causing it to crack. So that's one case. And I think on the pitching side, you know, with all these pitchers being fairly young, or at least the key pitchers being fairly young, this is probably a time where you can bring in a grand doll who has uh, you know, a lot of postseason experience, has a lot of experience getting pitchers extra strikes. And, you know, if, if they, if he shows up and is assertive and has an idea about, especially like a guy like Dylan Cease, who has not yet found, uh, success uh, for any sustained periods of time that he's probably more open to it. Maybe like Giolito will work with McCann and there isn't much to say to him, but like a guy like Lopez uh, cease, uh, you know, when, when they go deeper into the rotation or like say Kopech too, but when they get deeper in the rotation, like with Dane Dunning or Jonathan Stever or whoever might come up, you know, that's probably a case where a catcher who has a firm plan has done his research. You know, he can probably say something and it carries more weight than just a, a random imported veteran uh, coming into a clubhouse with 
a mixture of guys who have been there for five years and the guys who are just rookies and trying to establish a culture that he has not had a part in and uh, you know hasn't really had uh, any kind of proven success in this field doing so. Luis Robert was styling and profiling at SoxFest. Uh, <laughs> he had a good look with the turtleneck going and the, the, the chains that he has and the suit. John Greenberg of The Athletic wrote a piece about the relationship that Robert has with Aloy Jimenez. And uh, Jimenez had some good quotes this weekend. Uh, one of them was going so far and saying that Robert could be the next Mike Trout. Are you picking up what Aloy Jimenez is laying down on Robert, Jim? Uh, maybe not in terms of, you know, Trout's also his, his ability to control the strike zone and draw an insane amount of walks. And I don't know if players you know, like Jimenez who are, you know, you know assessing what it feels like to play next to a guy are thinking about on base percentage wins above replacement, all the, I guess, uh, the stats that go into making Mike Trout, Mike Trout. But when it comes to uh, maybe game to game impact or what it feels like to have him in the lineup, uh, roaming center field, uh, what it feels like when the game gets to him, I can see that being kind of similar, maybe not right away, but, you know, given the tools, given how quickly he seems to have learned and we're, we're hearing this, uh, we've seen it in action on video and we're hearing it more from evaluators who are talking about him as terms of a major league player, just his motor and his, his, uh, desire to change games with an extra base or with a, uh, you know, with a throw or with these, these extra actions, you know, maybe not, uh, directly scoring runs, bat to ball, or, you know, I guess like, um, you know, robbing homers or anything like that, but just like the motor, the forcing the errors, the, uh, the two bases on a sack fly, that kind of thing. Uh, I can see that being so impressive to, uh, and then making such an impression to guys who are playing with them that, uh, when you think of it that way, just game to game impact, that doesn't seem entirely far fetched, you know, stringing together 10 win seasons. That's yeah, that's, I don't think you want to tag that to anybody before uh, the first one happens. But when it comes to uh, just what it feels like excitement level, uh, he might not be you know, the way you won't change the channel when he's there that I can buy more. And then there's Dallas Keuchel first meeting the Chicago media on Friday at Sox Fest and he becomes the first Astros player to apologize for the cheating scandal. And this is the quote from Dallas Keuchel. He starts off with, quote, I think apologies should be in order from everybody on the team. When the stuff was going on, it was never intended to be what it's made to be right now. You can go back and watch film of every team in the playoffs. There was probably six out of eight teams using multiple signs. It's just what the state of baseball was at at that point. Was it against the rules? Yes, it was. And I personally am sorry for what's come about the whole situation. It is what it is, and we've got to move past that. I never thought anything would have come like it did. I myself am sorry, but we've just got to move on, end quote. And that, again, is from Dallas Keuchel apologizing for being on the Houston Astros during their cheating scandal. And, Jim, I'm a bit surprised that it's Dallas Keuchel being the first one to apologize because he's a starting pitcher. I don't know how the Astros cheating setup helped the starting pitchers in any way. Uh, I don't know if they had any other methods that we don't know about 
because clearly all we know is that they're baiting garbage cans or possibly buzzing hitters knowing what pitches, trying to tell them what pitches were coming. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how the Astros were cheating to help their starting pitchers. But are you surprised that it's Dallas Keuchel first to publicly show remorse what happened in Houston? Yeah, I guess him versus the field, I'm surprised. But um, somebody had to eventually. And I think the way he did it, they probably I imagine he had to give it a lot of thoughts because that's a thorny thing to speak on the behalf of an entire team or, or start speaking on the behalf of a team uh, that uh, you won a championship with, you grew up with. A lot of these players, he... Uh, experienced a lot with, you know, you talk about the, you know, a rebuild, you know, going through the system, bus trips, you know, the lowest lows, the highest highs, you know, he was there pretty much the whole way. So for a guy like him to speak, I think means something, but also, you know, it has to be carefully considered because, you know, he's part of it, even if he might not have directly benefited, like you said, you know, he probably benefits from, you know, maybe additional runs being scored in a certain game and being able to relax or a pitch an inning longer in the game. But in terms of like direct benefit, unless he was, like knowing when to throw pickoff moves to first base when the steal sign was on. Uh, I don't know if that actually happened. There's been nothing about that, but I think that's the only way like sign stealing could benefit a pitcher. Um, but yeah, it's, it seems like the way he, he presented it, it, it strikes me more like, you know, he's, I guess, going with the semi defense and it's not entirely defense, but I think it's a, like a, a play for empathy uh, if nothing else that, you know, maybe Astros players were told this is what we need to do because other teams are doing it to us. And I think, uh, you know, the, I'm, I buy that to a certain degree just because there was that Wall Street Journal report that said that the, you know, one of the reasons why Manfred couldn't go after the players was that the Astros management didn't like pass along the word to players in terms of what was being watched for and what was, uh, you know, what was under scrutiny and what was going to be, uh, uh, subject to harsher punishment should they be caught because they just the Astros management never passed it along. So I can see, you know, based on what we know of the Astros management, Jeff Lunau and so forth, that uh, I can see them just saying, uh, we're just going to keep uh, go, you know, pressing this until we get busted and, and we'll deal with and, and even then we'll probably be able to outrun the ramifications or whatever punishments handed down. But at the player level, I do wonder if, you know, they just had this kind of uh, mindset to where, you know, we need to do this because they're doing it to us. We're, this is just how the game is now. We're a step ahead, but we have to stay a step ahead because other teams are catching up to us. And uh, It's not a defense, you know, just it, I think players are probably more aware than that. But, you know, maybe given we've heard about the Red Sox and so forth, there might have been a couple other teams doing something similar to where they felt like they could maybe extrapolate it just to make themselves feel better. I do think, you know, the game they got busted for, one of the games that was drawn, attention to, you know, a meaningless 2017 game against the White Sox and Danny Farquhar on the mound. I think that's the kind of game that shows that they were going overboard. That was just cultural. And that was, you know, there's nothing to gain from beating up the White Sox in August. That's just something where you're just kind of addicted to it at this point, or just feel like uh, it doesn't matter when or where you do it. It just, uh, it's great to know what's going on. Uh, that strikes me as problematic and, and more so than an arms race thing. It's purely just Let's do this as much as we can. But I think there is something to buy in his defense that, uh, you know, especially come playoff time, that everybody is seeking an edge. And this is just the way it's, uh, it manifested itself to the Astros. And they just maybe relied on a bit too much. And, uh, well, they, get, they got more than their hand slapped, but they're dealing with the punishment now. But, 
they had their reasons for the time. And in hindsight, the reasons were not good enough. So later that weekend, you have the awards dinner in New York for the Baseball Writers Association. You know, Mike Trout picks up his American League MVP. Uh, and then Justin Verlander's there to pick up his American League Cy Young Award. Mm-hmm. And compared to what Justin Verlander said, accepting his Cy Young Award at the Baseball Writers Dinner, that Verlander said, quote, everyone knows the Astros are technologically and analytically more advanced than any team in Major League Baseball. So, Jim, is Justin Verlander back to being a villain after everyone felt good about him being traded from a lousy situation in Detroit to Houston and winning his first World Series? Yeah, I think I saw that tweet pass by, and I think he had to wait for laughter to die down. If I saw you know, an accurate uh, accounting of the events, like he did not intend that to be a laugh line. Right. But I think it got the uh, the, the loudest uh, uh, guffaws of anything. And yeah, I, I think he's he's an interesting character, like uh, just in general, because I think you can, you know, at times you can uh, applaud him for his candor, especially when it came like the juice baseballs thing and the seams and everything and uh, him taking it to, you know, him take uh, airing his uh, his uh, grievances publicly and letting the league know and letting everybody knows what he thinks and, and talking about it on Twitter that was very refreshing. But when it comes to like, you know, a blackballing uh, reporters from the clubhouse because of a misunderstanding he had and, 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 and forcing the or I guess, uh, urging the Astros and the Astros agreed to violate uh, the baseball writers of association America agreement by, uh, you know, uh, banning reporters. He doesn't like, he, he does have this, uh, this, this jerk streak in him that uh, is, doesn't necessarily go away. It's probably partially, what makes him such a great competitor, but it also makes him pretty petty at times. So I can see him uh, just uh, saying what he wants to when it'll benefit him and uh, backing off when it doesn't or just pretending it doesn't exist when it doesn't. That seems to be his MO. So I, I could, it seems to ebb and flow based on, uh, I guess, what what events he's either responding to or what events he caused. And, and I think uh, he's likable when he wants to be, but I also think he's got something in him that uh, – often flares up that makes you think like, yeah, he's just, uh, he, he, you know, I guess oftentimes as many, many people are, and especially you know, maybe people at the top of the games are, they're in it for themselves. And in that case, uh, this is a case where uh, he probably does not want to pull a Keiko, especially since he's still wearing the uniform. I think it's another way Keiko could kind of uh, say something is because he's not wearing the uniform anymore. And uh, if he's, uh, if, if you know, what he said is probably, you know, maybe the Astros don't like hearing it, but it's probably more important to him that the White Sox like hearing it at this point. Those are his guys now. Those are the guys he's uh, going to battle with. And you can tell from the re- reactions from the Dodgers and other teams that uh, other players on Twitter, like Chris Archer, that they're not happy about this. So I'm guessing for somebody like Keiko and other players wearing other teams' uniforms now that they probably have to be more contrite than the guys who are actually still in Houston. I know it's not until September, but I'm really really looking forward to the series when the Houston Astros travel to the Bronx and face the Yankees. Yeah. And there, there's a part of me, Jim, that wants Justin Verlander to start one of those games and see if we get a recreation of 
how Yankees fans used to treat Pedro Martinez was when he was with the Boston Red Sox and see if that comes back. Yeah, there will be a whole lot of, uh, I think Oakland can have some fun with them, especially with fires being there. Uh, even like the white, you know, going to a, a White Sox can go into to, to guaranteed rate against the Houston series. That could be a lot more interesting, especially people close to the field. Uh, you know what they're yelling, what signs they're bringing. Uh, this could be a season long thing, just a traveling heckling show, kind of like, it's like the crowd work in reverse where the crowd is picking on, uh, the, the guys they came to see. It's going to be, it's gonna be a lot of fun. And some crowds, I think, like you mentioned, especially the Yankees, when it gets to that point, I'm not sure who the Astros play in interleague this year, but, uh, uh, yeah, it's going to be in the in the Rangers too. I think can be good, especially those uh, interstates uh, or interstate series. Yeah, it's going to be. I don't think this is going to go away anytime soon, especially since you know they go to a new ser- uh, new city and a new series month after month, and and those fans haven't got a chance to yell at those guys yet. It's going to be fun. Yeah, it's not going away in 2020. They are the bad guys. They are the villains of the season. I think Grandal called them the the New England Patriots of baseball. And I, the thing about the Patriots is, yes, they cheat. They were probably cheating this season. They got caught filming the Cincinnati Bengals sideline, which why are you trying to cheat <laughs> with the Cincinnati Bengals? That's like the 2017 White Sox, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, the thing about the Patriots is is that they're always good. And they always find a way to the postseason. And maybe Houston finds themselves back into the postseason in 2020. But yeah, this is, I agree with you, Jim. This is not going away. They are the bad guys. And uh, to me, it's just, uh, I saw everybody warming up to Justin Verlander when he got traded to Houston, kind of rooting for him because he'll have an opportunity to win a World Series after he pitched so poorly in the World Series appearances with the Detroit Tigers. Uh, he still hasn't pitched all that great in the World Series, even for the Houston Astros, but he got his ring. They cheated, and now he's saying the things that he is saying publicly about the cheating scandal. And as a White Sox fan, Verlander's always kind of been the bad guy, like the final boss, mm-hmm. especially when the Tigers were really good. Like, oh, you got to really try to beat this guy because he's the best that they have. Uh, it's For me, Verlander has gone back to that role and uh he is now a villain along with the rest of his astros teammates yeah you mentioned uh the, the new england thing and part of me wonders if you know as as long as major league baseball is you know figures out a way to dress it and, and especially the video rooms like and i wouldn't mind nailing the door on the video room shut uh when it comes to uh in-game strategy and just not allowing hitters to go in there but when it comes to, you know, if they're able to put a lid on this and and I, I guess thwart, at least for the time being, any immediate other scandals, I wonder if this could be good for baseball in terms of ratings and interest having a villain, uh, having a villain that's good the way the Patriots are good and having everybody want to get a shot at them and on big stages. You raise really good points, Jim. You raise good, good points. Yeah, everybody likes, uh, everybody likes watching a villain fail. Yeah, and then you know the Astros might not. It'll, it'll be severely annoying if they somehow win the World Series and try to treat it like it's overcoming adversity when they're the ones that cause the problem. And uh, yeah, that, that'll be. And, and I hope that you know if that happens, the media tries to uh, resist that uh, narrative. But 
you know, if they get knocked out, like say in the divisional series or a championship series or a world series, like it's going to be, people are going to be as, uh, as thrilled for the team that won as much as they're going to be thrilled that the, the team that lost blew it. And, uh, you know, they gets there with the Yankees in general, just because the Yankees are the Yankees, maybe the Red Sox are worn on people too. When it comes to like, even the Yankees were likable when they got judge and Sanchez and these young, you know, Severino, these young guys, mm-hmm. homegrown guys, nobody could really knock the Yankees for having those guys. It was annoying that they did, but, uh, even some people softened up to the Yankees a little bit just because they built teams the way they wish their teams could be built. But when it comes to the Astros, uh, the Yankees haven't been like this maybe in a while when it comes to just loathe and reviled and maybe ever when it comes to, you know, this, uh, underhanded, uh, you know, maybe since the Steinbrenner days, like the eighties, uh, where they've just had this off field stuff or, or extracurricular stuff that really makes them just out and out reviled. And I can see just, you know, just a whole lot of interest, a whole lot of stories and, and, you know, good sports theater. Like it's for a bad reason, I suppose this cheating scandal, but you know, should the cheating go away or should it be, uh, stamped down. I can see this just being good sports theater fodder. Well, back to Sox Fest, another topic that came up during the Saturday town hall in which fans get to ask questions to manager Rick Renteria and general manager Rick Hahn. One fan asked Rick Hahn about signing Lucas Giolito and Yohan Mikata to contract extensions to extend the competitive window. And these quotes are from the Chicago Tribune article that Lamont Pope wrote And quote from Rick Hahn, we've had decent amount of success for the past couple of decades in terms of extending young guys going back to Mark Burley and Paul Konerko back when they were arbitration eligible or even the pre-arbitration eligible players going through Chris Sale, Jose Catana, Adam Eaton, Tim Anderson, and now Luis Robert and Aloy Jimenez. It certainly is a priority for this organization to keep this group together as long as possible and make all the pieces fit for as long as we can. When we presented the blueprint for the rebuild a few years back to Jerry Reinsdorf, one element of it was our economic strategy, and that included not only continuing to be aggressive trying to sign young players, perhaps being even more aggressive than we have before, as you saw with Aloy and Luis, signing them before they even had a big league at bat. The only thing I'll say is that it continues to be a priority for us, but it does take two to tango. Sometimes players prefer to go year to year and maintain their own flexibility to hit free agency as soon as possible. We're not going to convert on everyone, but we're going to go down swinging on the ones we really want, end quote. And then again, that's from Rick Hahn responding about the possibility of pursuing contract extensions with Yohan Mikata and Lucas Giolito. And all right, Jim, is there anything that catches your ear hearing Hans quote that gives you a sense that maybe something could be on the horizon for a Giolito or Mancata contract extension? I would say not more than before. I have the sense, you know, especially given how far they were willing to go with Robert before he played his first major league game that, you know, as we talked about before with Yohan Mancata, especially with him, like, you know, giving him the Alex Bregman deal that no longer seemed or maybe not that it ever seemed far-fetched, but when they're willing to go that that distance with Robert, who hasn't played a major league game, I could see them going five for a hundred or whatever with a guy like Mankata, just because it does seem like they really prioritize capping that last year of arbitration earning and capping that first year of, or first year or two of free agency. 
So that doesn't surprise me necessarily, but, uh, you know, I guess it is good to hear it, uh, just that it is on the radar and that, you know, he's, I, I guess the only thing I wouldn't want to hear or that would surprise me is if, if uh, he said, well, we've gone to their camps about it. We've talked to Giolito's representation. We've talked to Mankata's guys, and there's just been no interest on their part. Uh, we're willing to go to the table if they are. Like, that would have surprised me, I suppose, like if, uh, you know, Mankata or Giolito just said they, their their representation said, we're going year to year, like with John Danks, the way that he resisted signing early until the very end uh, is when he signed his extension. Uh, and to his <laughs> to his profit, I could see like with Moncada and Giolito, especially Giolito, his breakout season still having a couple injuries that kept him below 200 innings. He thinks he can go a bit better uh, or go a bit uh, uh, higher with his overall value and Cy Young finishes and so forth. And the same thing with Moncada, you know, his hamstring injuries like I could see either of those guys saying they haven't seen the best from us yet. Uh, to where maybe they aren't uh, quite willing to sign for the numbers the White Sox are giving. But, you know, should February roll around and he, uh, Giolito signs an extension when Quintana did or, you know, Mankata is the same thing, then I would not be surprised just because it does, you know, as Han said, and as they've shown with the uh, pre-major league guys, it does seem to be, be very important to them. I got a feeling, Jim, and this feeling is coming from the part of me that was 90% sure that Luis Robert was going to get a contract extension. I'm thinking one of the two, Lucas Giolito or Yohan Makata, will be signing a new contract before opening day. That will be the big news item a week or two before opening day that you and I are going to be talking about is a new contract for one of those players. I don't think both will sign a contract extension, but... There's just a part of me that feels that one of them will. Do you want to take a guess on which one do you think is more likely to do it? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. That's not probably how I phrase it, one or the other. I don't I don't know. Like, I don't have a strong... I can make arguments for and against either guy. Do you have a sense or do you have a, a stronger feeling about one or the other? Being in the media room, I think it's going to be Makata. The friendship that he has with Abreu and Jimenez and Robert. Remember, like I had a feeling like peer pressure could have been playing a part with Luis Robert deciding to sign mm-hmm. a contract extension. Yeah. I, you know, there there's a part with Makata that he's going to play with Abreu f- for the rest of Abreu's career in Chicago. And if Abreu is the reason why Mikata's staying in Chicago, then he won't sign a contract extension. He'll become a free agent and he'll leave. But if he builds this new friendship and he loves being teammates with Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert, especially Robert, because I think the two of them played together uh, when they were both in Cuba, then he may look at Robert's situation and say to the White Sox, okay, if you give me a contract extension, I want to be here as long as Luis Robert is here. And I think that is, that's going to be, what, a five- or six-year deal because Mikata's got, what, four years left? Um, it may not even have to be six years um, because Robert has a up to eight years. So Robert could be here until 2028, and Mikata will become a free agent in 2023. So, yeah, it would have to be at least five more years that the White Sox uh, would have to tack on to the remaining years of control they have on Mikata. 
It would be a huge contract. It would be the largest contract that the White Sox would ever sign to a single player. And it would be more than $100 million. But I feel if they're ever going to sign someone to more than a $100 million deal, Jim, it's going to be one of their internal players, one of their homegrown players. Uh, if we can count Mikat as a homegrown player, thanks to the Chris Sale trade. Mm-hmm. And uh, my gut is telling me he's the one that will accept a contract extension before opening day. Yeah, that was that kind of crossed my mind, the peer pressure thing or just the, you know, whether it's peer pressure or whether it's just the environment he likes playing because, uh, you know, part of the word on Mankato when he was in Boston and came over is that he's not somebody who, uh, he's he's flashy in some respects, but he also doesn't seek a whole lot of attention or he doesn't need to play for the biggest market. He just kind of goes about his own business and has his own style, but is not like a, uh, yeah, you know, like a when when the comparisons were coming up in terms of uh, Cuban imports, like a Yasiel Puig type who uh, likes drawing headlines for most things he does. I think Mankata likes, uh, you know, he's, he's got his uh, excesses when it comes to style, and when he, when the White Sox got him, his Twinkie habit. But when it came to uh, just, I guess, his overall personality, demeanor, the way he uh, approached the game, he was more about, you know, more business like on the field and. And and more willing to let other guys do the talking and and be the face and you know if uh, we've seen with Eloy that he likes being the guy he likes being the uh, uh, the showman and 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 somebody who enjoys the media attention and uh, likes you know and and to you know to Eloy's credits you know even with uh, imperfect English just goes out there and likes talking in English and likes communicating with people and. Uh, is willing to take on that role. So I could see that being the case where, yeah, there's just, it's a good situation for him. And as you mentioned with the, uh, uh, with Abreu and, and, and Robert, just the, the, the Cuban lineage that the White Sox have, that it's a good situation for him. And so if the White Sox give him a number, sure. I think with Giolito, he might still feel like he's a year away from being the ultimate Giolito form. Um, you know, given the year he had last year and given just the injuries, keeping him from out of the Cy Young finalist, uh, group that maybe he can, you know, reach the level he was expected to be when he was at the nationals. And if so, then his number goes up a lot more. And that might be one thing where the white Sox just don't want to commit to him entirely yet because of his track record and, and, and Giolito doesn't want to sell himself short and, you know, both have their reasons. I think with Giolito, he's not going to get a six to eight year deal like the position players are though. Yeah. He may get like a five-year offer, which makes sense after this season because now he hits arbitration, three years of arbitration. If the White Sox offer him a five-year deal before the 2021 season begins, they could buy out his three years of arbitration and get his first two years of free agent eligibility. And as long as he's healthy and strong, I mean, starting pitchers are seeming to age better when it comes to free agency than position players. I mean, look at Marcelo Zuna and Nicholas Castellanos. Yeah. Uh, they're they're going to fall way short of expectations and free agent signings. Uh, that Giolito could still get a pretty big contract, uh, even if he were to sign another deal with the White Sox that bought out his arbitration and the first two years of his free agency. I just don't see him signing one now or being offered one now. But I could see the White Sox trying to get something done with Yohan Mikata because if they can find a way, Jim, that they can have control of him until 2028, I think that helps them in next year's free agency negotiations, especially if they want to go after players like Mookie Betts and George Springer, for example, because they can say, 
by the way, we got Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert and Yohan Mikata here until at least 2027. And that can give some more reinsurance for upcoming free agents that want these mega deals on, I don't even know who I'm going to be playing with. You guys need to paint a, a picture for me and who's going to be here when I'm in the middle of my contract. And and that's where it could help benefit the White Sox in that aspect. I don't think it's a large aspect or a reason to do that. I think the biggest reason is, is that Yohan Mikata is awesome. Let's keep him around as long as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that's kind of one of the side benefits too, just thinking about as far as a, a new contract for Yohan Mikata. A, again, this is the part of me, my gut, that was 90% sure that Luis Robert was going to get a contract extension. And my gut's just, you know, it's rolling well right now. So it just wants to continue throwing the dice on the craps table, Jim, and say, I think Yohan Mikata is going to get a contract extension offer before opening day. And I wouldn't be surprised if we're talking about a new Mankata contract before the season starts. Yeah, I think the one thing with Giolito too is that he's already had a Tommy John surgery, which I think might make him... Oh, good point. Uh, you know, it might make the White Sox a little less... Uh, Willing to, you know, have a, uh, you know, I guess buy out or, or go uh, out of the way to acquire extra free agency years just because of, you know, uh, God forbid he has another Tommy John surgery. His future forecast is a whole lot murkier and it just might be, you know, part of the risk equation that makes the numbers, you know, makes Giolito's numbers and White Sox numbers not quite aligned. We're going to talk about Michael Kopech later in the show during P.O. Socks because I think it's really interesting on the, some of the things that he touched on as far as the topics of him approaching the mental side of the game, trying to overcome his anxiety and depression. But we had some excellent questions this week in our mailbag. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to have a word from our sponsors. But after a break, it's your questions in P.O. Socks. All right, with SoxFest over, you might be thinking about heading down to Arizona for spring training to see the White Sox in action. And why wouldn't you? Arizona is always a great time. And if you are seriously thinking about going, make sure your first stop is visit Arizona.com slash spring training. There you will learn about why Arizona is a -a one-of-a-kind spring training experience with all 10 stadiums within 50 miles of Phoenix. Check out amazing restaurants and bars nearby in each city, including crap breweries like Four Peaks, Angel's Trumpet Ale House, and Goldwater Brewing Company. And don't forget, there's more to Arizona than just watching baseball. Explore Arizona's incredible landscapes and thrilling outdoor adventures. Check off must-see destinations like the Grand Canyon and Monument Valley. Arizona is a fantastic destination to bring the family along. If you are thinking about taking the kids along with you during spring break, Arizona has family-friendly resorts and hotels offering plenty of fun from water parks, horseback rides, wildlife parks that the kids will enjoy. No better time to check out the new White Sox players than this spring. And the best place to start your spring training adventure is visit Arizona.com slash spring training. Again, that is visit Arizona.com slash spring training. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Socks. 
Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you can submit your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting your questions to us at Socks Machine and also posting your questions on Patreon at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where our Patreon supporters get additional P.O. Socks questions answered on their ad-free version of the show, which if you're interested in getting that, go to patreon.com slash Socks Machine to sign up today. So, Jim, I think we got some really great questions. And the first question, as we teased before the break, was about Michael Kopech. And that question comes from Doug Wirtz. And Doug is asking, am I wrong for wanting Michael Kopech to start in Charlotte? I want him pitching good in good weather. Has he been able to pitch a full game in the majors without a rainout? I feel the bad weather helped because uh, caused the Tommy John surgery that he needed, and he pushed himself on a rainy day after other rainouts. Well, I think uh, you can look at it two ways. When it, yeah, I guess you can kind of treat it as a uh, uh, matter of perspective when it comes to starting the season in Chicago. One is that you know it is usually terrible weather, cold weather, uh, damp weather, sometimes snow. And it's not the greatest conditions to go about playing baseball. On the other hand, there are usually more cancellations, like out and out cancellations, like even before you know, the more the the early afternoon before the game starts, you know, it's 35 degrees and, and raining and realize that maybe 3000 fans are going to show up and they usually say, no, well, let's just uh, reschedule for sometime in August. So they, uh, you know, it's, a lot more days of rest in between starts. So if you're looking to ramp a guy up for a regular season, April isn't necessarily the the worst time to do it. And I think when it came to Tommy John surgery, that tends to be a more cumulative issue, just more damage uh, over the course of starts and the elbow isn't able to heal. And then it just uh, gets pushed beyond the breaking point. But it's usually not one start that does it or one pitch that does it. Tends to be more of a case where it's just already past the point of no return, and just every pitcher has a damaged elbow to some degree. Just some don't bounce back the way others do. And uh, but I think you know when it comes to the whole, you know, I guess idea of Kopech starting in Charlotte. I think yeah, you know, if you treat the conditions more in terms of being able to shape the game for what the pitcher needs, then I think that's a more compelling argument to make. Uh, like you know, in Charlotte, if Kopech throws. 100 pitches over four innings, or you know, if he if he's throwing like say 25 pitches an inning, they can say, oh, I'd rather have you throw three today because it's just not the right time to, not the right weather, not the right conditions to have him go, you know, try to pitch a fourth potentially high stress inning, or if you know he's he's uh, pitching well and they want to see what he looks like against the third time in the order, his first time out, and you know he risks the chance of losing the game. That's fine because uh, you know it's only Charlotte, and if he you know, gets, uh, starts getting hit hard on pitches 80 through 90. Uh, it's only a loss game in AAA. It's not a, uh, a loss game to a divisional opponent in April. So if you're looking for you know, ways to either carefully manage a pitcher or push him a little bit to see what he's got, I think uh, Charlotte is the way to do that before testing him in major league games. So I think that's more, that's the argument I think I'm more in line with when it comes to starting him in Charlotte and, just, you know, getting them up and down a couple times, uh, you know, uh, two starts in a row, five days apart. I, I think I think there are benefits to him doing that in a situation to where a loss isn't uh, all that costly. And I think mentally he's in a good place where he would accept that role. 
where maybe a couple years ago he may not have, that he would have been just disappointed that I reached the majors, I got hurt, you thought I was good enough to be in the majors, but now you're sending me back down to AAA. And I bring that up because at SoxFest, you know, Michael Kopech started SoxFest raising $20,000 for charity, buzzing off his golden locks. He had beautiful hair, Jim, <laughs> and he buzzed it off. Uh, he got married. He's now married to actress Vanessa Morgan, uh, which Vanessa was at SoxFest as well, uh, along with Michael. But from from this past weekend, Kopech opened, opened up to the public in a way that I don't know if any other White Sox players have before. He addressed his battle with anxiety and depression, and he shared on how he's in a good place now. And this comes from Michael Kopech. Quote, I've dealt with anxiety before kind of my whole life. It was just the idea of just seeking for more. The relevation, I can't seek for more for the rest of my life, was the blessing of being called up to the big leagues. I got there. I got to live it. But what's more at that point? I stopped looking for more and allowed me to not look too far ahead, not dwell on what I'd done wrong, just be myself and live through the moment. I look forward to embracing that opportunity when the season comes and just being myself on the mound and Kopech even added that Tommy John surgery was a blessing for him. He might be the first pitcher Jim I've ever heard say that Tommy John was a blessing. Uh, And, you know, he's always had the physical tools and with him working to overcome the mental side of the game, even if he does start the season in Charlotte, I wonder if we're going to see a new and approved version of Michael Kopech than the version we got excited for and finally saw in Chicago in 2018. Yeah, he mentioned some of that, uh, I guess, newfound maturity or, or perspective when it came to his actual pitching approach. And I think he scared some people by saying that, uh, you know, he came up uh, when he was when he was uh, climbing the ladder and, and uh, going level to level and came into the White Sox in the trade that he was the flamethrower and he felt like he had to be the flamethrower and had to be the guy throwing uh, – you know, hundred from the get go. And that's how he's going to get guys out. That's how he's going to intimidate guys. And now that he's, uh, had a bit more polish with his pitches and now they stepped away and, and realized how, I guess, uh, fleeting, uh, health and, and, and full power can be that, you know, maybe he wants to learn how to pitch, uh, without going full power all the time. And, and, you know, he'll still have 103 or whatever in his back pocket, but he wants to be able to pitch it less than that because, you know, it's not a way to, not a way to live. And I think he scared people by, you know, kind of who were thinking about Zach Birdie coming back from Tommy John surgery and not being able to throw one-on-one, but only like 94. I think he scared people that way. And he had to kind of uh, come back the next day and rephrase and say like, no, it's not, uh, I don't have any concerns that way. Just more of a matter of uh, how I approach the game and how I use all my, uh, all my skills, both uh, physical and mental to, you know, get through a game and get through a season. Uh, yeah, you know, it's it seems like it's kind of the, the the full package when it comes to on the field, off the field, just trying to channel this uh, you know maturity, this newfound perspective, whatever you want to call it, this you know, and improve mental health. And uh, it's nice to see. And and he's an interesting guy just because you know, he, he he has talked about this uh, newfound anxiety and or, or I should say this this anxiety he encountered for the first time and didn't know how to deal with it and. And he's, he's being very open about it. And at the same time, you know, when he's, you have these off field problems that you're learning to negotiate also has these very, you know, two very public relationships, one that didn't work out and one that now has. And, uh, 
he must be able to, at least in my 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 uh, read on it, to really you know based on these distant impressions, is just he must be able to uh, handle a lot. Just because you would think if if somebody isn't able to uh, focus on distractions, you wouldn't be dating celebrities <laughs> two in a row. You might try one and then realize like, oh, that was way too much. But uh, yeah, so apparently he's found a way to channel all this and. The hope is that, yeah, I think with the COPEC, the the hope or or the concerns is more physical than mental. I think the mental side is there. I think he was showing that in Charlotte after that that uh, hiccup he had. I think after his cousin died suddenly, uh, that he had these uh, just a string of rough outings in Charlotte, and he admitted uh, that his head wasn't entirely in it because of off field issues, and he got past it, and I, I think that was good for him. So. Uh, you know, when by the time he came to Chicago, he was a pitcher, not a thrower. And uh, I think, uh, you know, as he mentioned this being a blessing for him, I think he tried to make this time away just uh, going that into the mental strength game. And uh, you can, yeah, I think part of it is talk. Yeah, <laughs> you kind of have to fake it till you make it, and you have to talk about it until uh, you fully believe it yourself. But uh, it seems like he's got, uh, yeah, he's got everything going for him. He just needs to actually get back on the field and, and pitch every five days. Well, I'm excited to to watch him pitch. I, I think he's going to have a breakout year and bouncing back in 2020. And even if he does start in April with the Charlotte Knights and then, you know, somebody has to go on the injured list. If Gio Gonzalez's shoulder barks on him again and he's got to go on the IL and just knowing that there's Kopech right there that the White Sox can call up and fill in his spot for a duration of time makes you feel a lot better about this upcoming season than the White Sox calling up either Ross Detweiler or Dylan Covey. Uh, so this is how 2020 is already infinitely better than 2019 in my book. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's 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 great to hear that from Michael Kopech. And he's also very focused and he's ready to go and get the season started. And I can't wait to see what he brings, especially during spring training. I do wonder, Jim, if he's going to be one of those spring training performances that presses the issue and put the Rickies in a tough spot on trying to negotiate their way through on why Kopech has to start the year in Charlotte, even though he could be lights out. Uh, during spring training, maybe outperform some of the other starters like Ronaldo Lopez and Dylan Cease. Uh, but we'll see on how it all shakes out, Doug. And again, pitchers and catchers report in a couple weeks, and we'll start seeing them throw, and we'll start getting a better idea on who's performing well to the start of spring training. But again, spring training performances are no indication on how well they're going to throw in Chicago. So maybe you're onto something about pitching in good weather for Kopech to break off the rust. But Doug, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Matthew. And Matthew's asking, Jim, are you more concerned about the infield defense with Tim Anderson or the outfield defense with Aloy Jimenez and Nomar Mazzara? Which has the bigger potential to hurt the White Sox playoff chances this season? And for those that listen to the Sox Machine Live at Reggie's uh, podcast episode over the weekend, you know how Connor McKnight feels about this topic as he addressed it <laughs> in great length. But Jim, which one are you more concerned about, infield defense or outfield defense? Yeah, I'm with Connor on this one. I think the outfield defense can be problematic. I, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to uh, suspend judgment on Mazzara just because I haven't seen him play every day. I know what the metrics say, and so I have a an idea of what I'm going to expect to see, but I will give him, you know, probably a month 
to just judge it with my own eyes and not try to look at metrics too much and just try to get an idea of what I think he should have been able to get to and, and try not to let, you know, prejudgment or what he did in Texas cloud, you know, what I'm seeing. And I think uh, uh, that only goes so far just because when you follow up uh, Daniel Palka in right field and John, uh, an injured John Jane, right. That even Mazzara's brand of below averages can look great. So I'm, I don't want to trust my own eyes too much based on what was there before, but uh, I think uh, new organization, um, new offseason, everything like that for him. And I, I can see him. Yeah, I, I want to see him with my own eyes first just before I completely uh, form an opinion. But I think with Elo and what we saw last year and what we've seen in the corners before, I think that's just, yeah, it, I think Anderson's errors are more acutely felt when they happen, just like when he uh, pulls his glove up on a on a chopper and doesn't uh, cleanly handle it or makes an errant throw he shouldn't have made uh, and it gives him an extra base that way that you think like, Oh, that's, you know, that's, that's a blow to the pitcher knowing that that should have been an out. But I think the outfield, there are a lot more outs that are just maybe not as noticed uh, to us watching from the center field camera and, and, and seeing what only the, the broadcast allows us to see. But based on what we've seen, you know, how pitchers talk about great outfields when they get them and then having a better idea of what Statcast says for superb defenders and, and having that being more of the greater discuss, baseball discussion and having a guy like Adam Engel uh, be, you know, have his defense become a greater part of the discussion just because we have the numbers saying he's really, really great along with the uh, occasional moments he has. I think that's uh, that's probably better known now than it has been just knowing how many balls a guy doesn't get to or, uh, the likelihood that a fly ball shouldn't have been caught. And we saw with Eloy last year that uh, he let a lot of balls drop in front of him and a lot of balls dropped towards the line, especially. And uh, so had some misadventures on the warning track that should have been out and turned into two or three bases. So you, you add that up over the course of games, and then add those games over the course of a season. I think that does add up to the point where, you know, those missed fly balls and, and, and those ones that drop in, especially, you know, you compound that with, Eloy's issues throwing the ball uh, and, and just people taking extra bases on him that it, I think it's a lot leakier than uh, Anderson's play at short is. And then, you know, you look at the surrounding infielders and I think the infield is more or less fine. So that's going to be the bigger problem. I do like how Eloy has taken the challenge, at least verbally of improving his defense and the quote that he gave James Fegan in his athletic article, um, you know, talking about whether he wants to play more DH and Eloy said, uh, I believe it was F that. <laughs> so I appreciate the spirits and the, the vigor with which he's defending uh, his own chances. And Renteria said the same thing, but you have to see it before you believe it. I know a lot of players, you know, talk about the, you know, the best shape of their lives story, talking about how this year's going to be different. And oftentimes they never are, but Eloy is young enough. And uh, based on his sprint speed and the, and the stats like that, that he's faster he showed speed on the base paths that he didn't show in the field. And I'm hoping that that's really a confidence issue, a first read issue to where he'll take more decisive breaks on fly balls and get to more than he got to last year. Yeah. Yeah. Getting a chance to speak with him. He kept saying that he's more confident. He's more confident than he was last year and he's ready to go in 2020. So we'll see, we'll see if that does translate to better defensive play in the outfield, but I'm with you, Jim. Uh, if there's a greater concern, I, I guess I'm more confident in Tim Anderson getting better charging on slow grounders and 
refining his throwing mechanics more than all of a sudden Nomar Mazzara and Aloy Jimenez are going to play great corner defenses in the outfield. I think that's just going to be one of those weaknesses we as White Sox fans will have to accept and that hope that their bats can overcome the defensive disadvantages they provide to the team. And I think they can. And I think that still will be a positive for the White Sox, a pretty big positive in Aloy Jimenez's case. Yeah, I think that the 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 difference with uh, Anderson is that he can occasionally make up for the play he didn't make with a play that a lot of shortstops couldn't make. Right. Whereas with Eloy and left and you know, maybe Mazarin right, I'm assuming so Mazarin right that the plays they don't make, there's nothing on the other side where the 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 ledger balances a little bit. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Andrew Siegel. And Andrew's asking, where do you see Justin Jershley managing next year? Charlotte? Do you expect to see him on the bench in Chicago? What kind of future can he have here if Ricky Renteria leads this team out of the rebuild? Yeah, I really don't exactly know what the end game is for a guy like Jershley just because you know he, he took over the Intimidators when he was 27 and he comes from a baseball coaching family. His dad is Mike Jershley, who is the third base coach of the Royals, who, you know, best known for not sending Alex Gordon uh, in the uh, game seven against the uh, San Francisco Giants, but eventually won a ring himself. But he, uh, you know, Jershley, both Jershley's had a similar background to where they never made the majors, but have had a long, uh, long life coaching and at various levels. And Jershley has been, you know, in the major league staff for a number of years. Uh, Mike Jershley has, and it seems like Justin Jershley is working in the same direction. I think when that New York Times story came out about uh, Justin Jershley and what the White Sox are doing with him in Kannapolis, that it was, you know, they, they, the way the story was framed was building the manager of the future. And Part of you know, part of me can see that based on the way the game is going and how the you know the managers are kind of conduits for information, and and best using the information given to them by the front office that you would want, yeah, you know, maybe is opened up to somebody who is really great at communicating with guys in a language that they understand and uh, is also open and has been indoctrinated with what the White Sox have been. Uh, telling them what makes a good manager and what information is really important since he's been uh, uh, a bench guy, since he hasn't been on the field himself. But, you know, when you look at his history, he played 184 games over four seasons, whereas his dad played 999 games over 13. That's a huge experience gap that I don't know exactly how uh, a guy overcomes. You know, I, I know that there are some guys who have never made the majors and have gone on to be uh, good managers, but when it comes to like 184 games over four seasons, topping out in high A, um, yeah, I and given the number of quality candidates who never get a shot, you know, and we're seeing that right now with uh, you know trying to fill the Houston and and, and Mets vacancies, that it opens a you know there are so many guys who are looking for their first shot, however they can get it. That you know grooming a guy like Jershley who has that little experience and and has seen only a narrow a slice of baseball as a player. Uh, I wonder how that translates to trying to commandeer a major league clubhouse. Now, whether it's just, you know, the course his dad takes to where he's on a major league bench uh, for, you know, the bulk of his career, you know, in, in a non-managerial role, maybe that's how it happens. And that's the way he, uh, you know, he's the information guy, or at least he's the, the club guy who uh, knows how the White Sox operates. 
in, in, the, in the larger scheme. But when it comes to being a manager himself, I'm not quite sure. But I think, you know, the Wes Helms, who was managing the Charlotte Knights at this point, uh, he came into the organization last year and was a coach at Birmingham. Uh, he doesn't seem like he's on any kind of track the way that uh, uh, the way that Jershley is, the way that Matt Zaleski is as pitching coach. Uh, they, it does seem like they have plans for a couple of guys, and then the other guys are uh, some other guys are more filler. But I can see him managing Charlotte next year. But after that, that's the kind of gap I can't quite close. Let's see how he does in Birmingham. I just want him to have success. I want the Birmingham Barons to have some success because that they have not seen a winning team in a really long time as well. I think it's like since 2013 when the Barons last had a winning record. Yeah. Um, thanks to the disappointment of 2019. Yeah, that's where Omar Vizquel kind of hit his wall. His uh, you had a lot of success with Winston Salem Dash with his brand of uh, his brand of baseball, kind of uh, uh, freewheeling approach that worked well with a talented team, a team that was more talented than the league in Winston Salem, but. Uh, when it came to Birmingham and some of the environmental things like hitters hitting a wall, uh, the tougher hitting environment, uh, his brand of baseball didn't really work. <laughs> it was, it was, his flaws were a lot more exposed. And I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays on Birmingham, especially since I'm now going to be two and a half hours away. Yes. So we have a, an extra PO Sox question. It comes from Josh. And Josh is asking, can we start calling you Honky Tonk Jim? And do we need to change the intro music from rock to country with you moving to Nashville? No, uh, <laughs> but I am I am looking for like, you know, part of the reason I was sold on Nashville Sight Unseen is that uh, I looked at the concert listings and yeah, I'm I'm going to do well here. Just for a month, you're <laughs> kind of, kind of uh, you, know, you know, looking at some of the, the calendars, like, yeah, there's a month where I could do four easily and it'll cost me less than, a hundred bucks just because they're small club shows. It's going to be great. But yeah, when I made my new year's resolution to visit Birmingham this year, I knew it was uh, going to be an easy one to achieve. Just note folks. He did not say no to start calling him honky tonk Jim. Not yet. <laughs> honky tonk Jim Margulis. I think it's got potential. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the music scene though. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing if I'm like James McCann and I develop a Southern accent out of nowhere because I was in the South for a bit. <laughs> he's from California, but he talked, you know, he went to school in Arkansas and that's where you think he's from, but he just picked it up and ran with it. Yeah. That'd be interesting. That'd be a new addition to the show. Um, but you know what? I would welcome it, Jim. So thank you for answering my PO socks question. I, yeah. <laughs> I do like the word y'all. I want to be oh, able to pull off y'all yeah. because it's so, yeah, it's inclusive. Like you don't have to worry about, you know, you know, trying to expand the term you, you guys or using, you know, uh, you know trying to, you know, just an easy, inclusive word that always sounds good when you, when you have the, uh, when, when you have confidence in delivery, I don't, I feel like I'd be faking it so far, but I'm hoping I can at least, if I can do nothing else with, uh, Southern culture. I want to be able to pull off a y'all once in a while. All right. Make note, folks. We may hear more y'alls coming from Jim uh, in 2020, especially later in 2020. Uh, but anyways, Andrew, thank you so much for asking your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Socks. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, 
Again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. If you follow me on Twitter, at Socks Machine underscore Josh, but you don't follow at Socks Machine, can you take a moment and also follow at Socks Machine? Not saying that we have a Steve Stone and Jason Benetti Twitter fight that's going on, but I just noticed that there's about a 1,500 follower difference between the two accounts. And if there are those of you that follow me, but you don't follow Socks Machine, can you please just take a moment and go to Twitter and follow at Socks Machine. So you're getting everyone's content that's producing it at Socks Machine. And you guys are just not receiving what I tweet out, which I always tweet out what we're working on. But just in case, if uh, I'm on vacation for a week or I go back to China for a week, uh, you can still get everything that we're producing at SocksMachine.com. Yeah, once I'm done with this move, I will be more active than I have been. So I've been conserving my energy. We'll put it that way. There you go. So again, though, it would mean a lot if you guys could take a moment and follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine. And it would even mean more if you would like to get more from us as far as extra writing and extra podcast content uh, by going to patreon.com slash Sox Machine to sign up today and uh, help support us. We have different levels that you could sign up for monthly to, to get additional content. Plans start at $2 uh, to get the extra podcast and get the ad-free podcast. Uh, And there's also some sweet giveaways, too, if you sign up for a higher tier. But again, that's at patreon.com slash socks machine. And you can do that today. And that will do it for this edition of the Socks Machine podcast as we recap Socks Fest 2020. Next week, we're going to be talking about the top 100 prospect list as we'll try to get some of the top prospect writers to talk about the White Sox farm system and the top 100 in general and maybe a little sneak preview into the 2020 Major League Baseball draft. So that's also another great opportunity for our Patreon supporters. You guys can ask those questions to the prospect writers when we book them on the show uh, as far as some additional thoughts that you would like to hear about and you would only get that recording on the special podcast patreon feed if you just discovered the socks machine podcast you can subscribe to the show in a number of ways spotify apple Podcasts, google podcast stitcher radio and audioboom.com slash socks machine the Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.